Welcome back to the PropTech Ramble. I'm Michael Grant. Hi everyone, I am Charlotte. Uh, yeah, so I'm Sam. <laughs> <laughs> um, plug away. PropTech for us as, as Metricus uh, is, again, it's not just new, it is legacy as well. Yeah, I think I've got to say it's about the people, so like making things easier for the people in the building and also people who run the building. And if it doesn't do that, then what's the point? <laughs> <laughs> and I think a lot of what PropTech does is try and make get those old buildings and turn it into something that's a bit new. That's what it's all about, really, apart from me rambling on like I'm doing now. So, uh, <laughs> that's why it's called PropTech. Right? <laughs> that's <laughs> very true. Very true. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Uh, um, welcome to the PropTech Ramble with a slightly different host this week. As you can probably see, I'm not, I'm not Michael Grant. Uh, I'm Sam Hall, also part of Metricus and head of technology. So I'm the one when you know Michael finishes his rambling, I try and make it happen uh, with the help of the team. So um, yeah, it's a fun, fun job. Uh, and I'm talking today with Khalid, uh, who is from uh, Nodens Tech uh, and is technical director there. So, please want to give a quick introduction to yourself? Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks, Sam. Um, so, my name's uh, Khalid Rajab, and I'm a co-founder of Nodens. Uh, so, basically, I'm a techie. I have a background as an engineer. Um, I before that, I spent uh, far too long at university, um, first picking up degrees in maths and um, electrical engineering, and then spent some time as an academic. So. Um, you know, it was a good opportunity for me to, um, you know, jump into cutting edge science and technology, things like um, invisibility cloaks and metamaterials and even uh, getting to use the quantum word at times. Um, so, yeah, I really enjoyed the collegiality and mentoring students of that. And um, in fact, I'm still a part time academic at uh, Queen Mary University of London. Uh, but um, after, you know, such a long time in academia, it was uh, ready for me. To, time for me to move on, and um, I felt that you know industry was the place for me, and I could have a bigger impact on the world there. So that's when I founded uh, Nodens with uh, a friend of mine, Rishi. Yeah, cool. And yeah, we we obviously we met at an accelerator. Uh, I think it was probably three or four months ago now. Actually, probably longer, maybe six months. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's the Digital uh, Catapult yeah. Future Network Labs Challenge. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, and yeah, we ended up, of course, just getting talking about uh, the applications of you know nodes and everything across so many different um, bits of technology. Um, but the, I guess, the primary focus of nodes and what we'll talk about mainly today is is that you know the Internet of Medical Things, which is quite a nascent sort of area. I think it's something that is growing, um, but it's. It, it's something that we're learning more and more about what you can do with devices in a medical scenario that yeah um, absolutely and how to make them actually useful for for doctors basically um so i guess uh shall we give a quick overview of what the the nose device which i can see is just above your above your head <laughs> on top of the board for everyone else um you know what it does how it works I think that's probably a good place to start. Yeah, sure. Um, so the Nodens device is um, a sensor which uses um, wireless frequencies to be able to detect where people are and what they're doing. So um, the key thing here is it doesn't use any cameras or you know smartphone apps or any privacy invading 
um, things, but um, it can still very accurately tell where people are in a room. And we also use a lot of, you know, um, artificial intelligence, machine learning algorithms to be able to then recognize what the people are doing. So, you know, if we if we've got, you know, this this sensor right behind me, for example, it can um, it would be able to see that I'm here and it'd be able to see that I, you know, I'm sitting down on the chair. Um, so this is, uh, you know, this is useful if you're in a in, if you're in a, a medical environment and you want to, uh, you know, generate a picture of, um, you know, where where people are going, but also the state of their health and well-being. Yeah. And which which part of the spectrum does is the are the uh, radio waves that are used to to paint this this picture? I guess. Yeah. So we work in the millimeter wave band, which is um, around. Well, we work at around sixty gigahertz. Mm -hmm. So that's a, a very interesting band because it's um, you know from a regulatory perspective, it's unlicensed, which means Ofcom doesn't mind if you use devices there. Yeah. Um, and and the reason. Um, you know, uh, the reason that it's such an interesting band for us is because uh, at those high frequencies, you have much better resolution and accuracy than you would with, you know, Wi-Fi bands mm -hmm. or uh, mobile phone bands. Um, but also they're safe to humans, so they don't, you know, they don't penetrate the skin mm -hmm. and, um, you know, they'll just uh, bounce off you. The powers are extremely low, but they still... Uh, give you this very accurate, um, you know, picture of what's going on. Yeah, I think we've used when we spoke before. We kind of used the analogy of like it's like a like a bat, isn't it? So yeah, it's exactly. Like a bat, yeah, you know, in a picture in a cave. It's a very similar yeah. process. Yeah, and it's it's um, as good an analogy as you can get in mm. nature. So a bat will send out a very you know high frequency chirp, which bounces off walls or you know, insects in the room, and then the bats will receive the return signal, and some you know crazy processing goes on in the bat's brain, and it figures out exactly where everything is. Um, so that you know, that's very much what we do as well. So we're we're sending out these chirps um, that are electromagnetic instead of acoustic, and then we get the signal back and do a lot of you know processing. We have our bat brain on there, and. We try and figure out, uh, you know, what's going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it, it's the same as a human ear as well. So, you know, there's a slight delay that our brain can, mm. you know, process when when we have sound going from one side to the other. So, if the sound's coming from your right, it reaches you, you know, milliseconds before it hits your left ear, and your brain can then tell which direction the sound's coming from. Yeah, and. I guess also with it, of course, with the the band that we're talking, the wireless band that we're talking about being so far away from Wi-Fi and Bluetooth and things like that, there's no potential interference with those bands. Which I know that a lot of people in certainly in the commercial real estate world, and I imagine in the medical world as well, get nervous about because everyone wants to make sure their Wi-Fi works on their laptops. <laughs> um, yeah, something yeah. That we certainly get asked about quite a lot. Um, yeah, exactly. So. Um, that you're you're not going to have any interference with mobile phones or Wi-Fi networks or anything like that. 
Um, there, there are actually Wi-Fi networks that have been proposed, and that, and there are standards that do work at 60 gigahertz. So at some mm -hmm. point, you know, you may start to see these on the market, but they haven't really picked off, picked up. Um, and there are uh, the important thing is there are many protocols in place so that they don't interfere with one another. So yeah. it shouldn't be a, you know, a significant issue. Be very short range at 60 gig. I mean, interesting Wi-Fi band. Bit off topic. But. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean that that's the reason they've that's what the reason it's an unlicensed band. So mm. uh, there's a water absorption peak there, which means yeah. that when you send a signal there, most of it's getting absorbed, and it won't it doesn't go very far at all. So mm. because it's pretty useless for any long distance stuff, they said mm. you can do whatever you want with it at short range. So that could be you know sending ultra hd signals across the room to your tv without having cables or in our case using it for um finding out what's going on i guess if you've got that high if you have that high absorption rate for water though that also actually helps us with you know in the detection of humans who are obviously a big ball of water big bags of water yeah <laughs> water exactly water. so yeah, yeah. So the the signals just going to bounce off us, and yeah. that makes us much more um, much more visible. Yeah, and even though you know, in the sort of easy case for us is to detect um, where people are, I think that you know there's there's the potential for us to use it at a much more granular level, right? You know that we could use it use the same technology to be able to look at vital signs um yeah of course leads back into sort of the, the medical things area is yeah know, by just putting a, a fairly simple room <laughs> that's very easy to deploy you're able to look at everything from a is someone in the room have they you know stood up fallen over but also what's their breathing rate you know what's their heart rate what um i can't think of another example yeah. like threes but um <laughs> Um, there's, there's well, all their, their mobility as well so that's yeah, that's a really interesting one but uh, absolutely i mean this is something i'm you know really really interested about um and from you know from the perspective of the nhs it falls into something called the virtual ward so the virtual ward is the concept where you you create a ward in the home environment um and that's because if you have patients in hospitals, a lot of the time they're ready to be discharged, but you just have to continue to monitor their vital signs and their their well-being, and they're kept longer in the hospital than they need to. From the mm -hmm. hospital perspective, that's bad because it means they're taking up beds that can't be used for other patients. From the patient perspective, it's, it's really bad because, uh, first of all, they don't get to go home. Uh, second of all, they're, increased, they're at increased risk of infection and you know, something called decompensation, which is when, um, you know, they, uh, because they're in bed for so long, they're, mm. they're slower to recover and uh, their their illnesses tend to last longer. Mm. So if you can then monitor their well-being at home, then that means you can, you can get them into their home sooner and, uh, you know, it's a win-win situation for everyone. Mm. Um, so that, that's a really, that's a really exciting one. Um, that I'm, I'm, you know, really passionate about. Mm. And if you, you know, the key thing is measuring their vital signs. Um, that's a capability we have at the moment to measure their uh, breathing rates and uh, respiration rates. 
Um, but we're very interested to see what other things can you measure? Can you measure SpO2, you know, oxygen levels, mm -hmm. uh, blood pressure, um, and so on. And another thing that we, we can do right now is because we can, you know, we're, we're looking at their movements around the home and um, getting, you know, getting an idea of uh, what their actions are. Yeah. Um, it's not like a video camera where you're, you know, you're watching them all the time, but you're actually getting metadata with things like if they stand up from a chair, how long does it take them to stand up? If, and then they walk across to, to the kitchen. How long does it take them to walk across? And um, these are really important things for getting an understanding of their mobility. So if yeah. you look over yeah. a period of time, just those, you know, timing how long it takes them to do that daily trip from the bed to the kitchen to switch on the kettle, uh, you, you, can, you can see whether their mobility is, you know, degrading over a period of weeks or months or, or if it's improving. Um, so these are these are really important things um, uh, from the perspective of the clinicians who who are keeping an eye on them, but also to predict whether they're at you know increased risk of falls and um, mm -hmm. or other you know um, health conditions. And so there's a lot of exciting stuff there yeah. to be done. There's, yeah. I mean, yeah, there's <laughs> there's so much to unpack. But I guess one, how. Um, how does it tie into the sort of regulatory side of things? You know, because obviously there's a one of the perks is that it's a non-intrusive device. Because a lot of the things that you know we've seen before tends to be wearables or you know something that you have to carry around. That again, like often it might be something you'd forget as much anything. Whereas this is something you place in a room and you do literally forget it. Like you know, um, you're not going to remember necessarily that, that sense is in there, but it's still picking things up. It's still giving you that diagnostic information that means that yeah. we um over time yeah understand better how the patient is is, is recovering um how does th how does that tie into like the medical approvals and things or do is yeah it i mean uh, the medical uh, the regulatory side of things i mean you could have a series of prop tech rambles <laughs> probably a whole uh, whole year of them to discuss that but um, yeah, I mean, the key thing is in hospitals, anything which has you know some aspect of risk involved has to go through medical certification, which is you know a long and expensive process, of course. Um, so that could include you know monitor that obviously includes monitoring vital signs as well. Um, in the home, it's it's a different case. Um, again, it's a much longer uh, discussion you can have about this, but in general, it it's. Uh, it's it's simpler it's simpler mm. to do so uh particularly if you're if um you know if it's a consumer uh device of course you don't need medical device approval or, or if it's um uh you know if it's provided uh by you know even local authorities then mm. um or care home providers then you know you have a, a lot more leeway than you would in the hospital so um you know we we all use um you know, we we all use our phones and things to measure. Well, we don't all use, but a lot of us use our phones to measure our heart rates and SpO2 levels and things like that. So, um, uh, from from my view, just having more access to data, as long as it's re reliable, is you know is a good thing, and um, it opens up a lot of avenues to intervention and uh, improving health. Yeah, 
I think it, it will naturally it opens up a lot more sort of we talk about that kind of home aspect a lot more equality in terms of what people can have access to because i know that for example yeah. my, my grandparents you know <laughs> they may have a, a smartphone but it you know they're not they're not so au fait with smartphones yeah. it's really their thing you know i tried to get them to have things like an apple watch or something like that so that you know you have that constant heart rate tracking and everything but it, they didn't want it like that's not what they want yeah yeah I, I mean that that's yeah i mean that that's uh, such a you know such an important issue and that's one of the key things really so uh, well it's one of the the big inequalities actually mm. because the elderly population the aging population i mean uh, they're really the ones as a population who needs needs uh, this technology the most um so you know they're they're at you know of course much heightened risk of uh, falls or mobility problems and things like that but very understandably you know they they didn't grow up my my grandparents even my parents didn't grow up with <laughs> with this technology so it it makes it yeah i mean it makes it a lot a lot more difficult for them to um to accept and adopt um so i think that's you know that's one of the the key things recognizing that you know there's some level of technological illiteracy mm -hmm. but also i think it's the role of engineers and product designers to to have devices that are you know that don't have this barrier to entry that that are easy to use that are simple and they're um you know they're going to do the job and the key thing I believe the key thing is they should be, you know, contactless, and there should be as little action required from, you know, from the patient as possible. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if your, you know, if your grandmother's at home and she's wearing a fall detection pendant or something like that, then, you know, if she does have a fall, then it relies on her first of all recognizing that she's in a state of distress, but also being able to then press the button um to to notify uh you know um, a care or emergency services so that's a step that has to be taken out because otherwise you're you know you're just missing a lot of um, emergencies and accidents yeah so um yeah it, the the key thing is um you want something that you can just plug into a wall and it's going to you know it's going to do its job with minimal fuss yeah like you want to, I think I completely agree. You know, at some point you want to essentially remove that interface. You know, the more interfaceless that the the device can be, you know, because even like say a pendant with a button, that's still an interface. It might not be a, a user interface in terms of a phone style thing, but it's still got an action required that, yeah, then I don't know, they may not be able to do. Whereas if you could have, yeah, for example, an Odin's device that's simply send a notification to, to someone so they can phone or, you know, contact that person. Because usually I think obviously some, what you don't want necessarily is to just immediately send out services because it's not going to be a hundred percent accurate ever. No technology is. Um, yeah. But you can certainly try and talk to them because you know, they're there, you know, that they, they're in some way able to speak. And if they can't, then you probably should, you know, therefore go and, and see about you know see if, see if they're okay um yeah exactly but, uh, that that's the vision um 
so if uh, you know have a device that can detect the uh, potential emergencies or anomalies and um, send send out a message so mm -hmm. a, a voice message to just you know like a an Alexa type device to yeah. ask them you know are you doing okay do you do you want us to call your you know your son or your your carer and yeah. and then wait for a response uh, if you could also measure their vital signs at the same time then you know even better because then you've got that extra bit of data you need to see if it is actually you know uh, if it is actually an emergency um, yeah. and and then you know uh, the carers tend to be uh, slightly more technologically literate um, mm -hmm. and in that case then you could have an, an app or a, a device or you know some sort of software platform that can notify them that you know there's there's something going on and yeah their uh, their attention is required yeah so hope, yeah so it's not in the last nhs uh, software update <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah the less said about that the better <laughs> <laughs> couldn't resist um but yeah and i suppose that's really you know that that kind of thing that the the comfort i suppose now that carers and the majority of the population um have with tech that's what some one of the things i think that's really contributed to the growth of medical tech in 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 homes in care homes in wards you know this virtual ward concept they say it's becoming far more accepted that actually it is a way that we could do things whereas if we were having this conversation five years ago it it might seem a little bit insane <laughs> um, yeah. and so we're in this phase of of real growth which i think is it's, it's really exciting um you know. yeah exactly i mean that um first of all of course technology has come along um mm. such a long way in the last five or ten years so um a few years ago you couldn't buy you know 60 gigahertz millimeter wave chips off the shelf unless you were you know paying you know thousands and thousands and thousands which obviously wouldn't work uh, but it's not just the hardware so it's the software side of things as well i think people have a much better understanding of what the what the interface should look like you know what what works um how a software platform should look um, and how it should aggregate and work with the data it's got to present it in the most efficient manner so yeah. i think all these parts are they're really important and they're you know coming together and it's it's just making the technology more accessible yeah it's just it's the whole thing right it's you know the accessibility of the chips which i think did apple or someone put a millimeter wave chip in which really helped with um so apple put in an ultra wideband chip oh, which UW is a uh, lower frequency but google yeah. uh, put a millimeter wave chip so they mm -hmm. had a, yeah. a very short range 60 gigahertz chip on their phone yeah. um starting from the pixel 4 yeah so that yeah i mean it's um uh, it's a far less complicated um mm. uh, chip and lower powered chip yeah. than the one we have so it's not suited for you know measuring a room but it, it's you know the idea there is you can use it to recognize like gestures if you're you know if you swipe across the uh, the scene mm. um it, in a similar manner to how we would recognize that using our artificial engine uh, artificial yeah. intelligence engine to see what a person is doing um the phone would recognize that gesture and mm. say oh the person's swiping from right to left so you know trigger an action 
So yeah, I mean, there's a lot of <laughs> you remember the iPlay from years ago with PlayStation, <laughs> which was like swiping in front of a camera. Uh, oh, okay. No, I mean, uh, I, I, I can't say I've ever tried that, but um, of course the, yeah, Microsoft's, um, uh, the Connect. It's, it's gone for my, yeah, of course the Connect. Uh, I mean, that's, it's no longer used in gaming, but it's had so many applications beyond that. And it's still, you know, it's still very widely used for, I mean, I've seen some museums and, uh, you know, all sorts of interactive exhibitions. One of my friends actually did at university. Um, her dissertation was on using the Kinect for gate analysis. So very similar to the yeah. stuff we're talking about where people were, you know, how can we use millimeter wave to actually detect where, how people are walking across rooms. This was, uh, you had to like walk on a treadmill to uh, different songs to see how it affected your gait. It was a great. It was yeah, great. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was an amazing piece of technology when it came out, and um, Microsoft bought a company, so they acquired the company mm. that developed this technology. And um, I mean, I, I had a few colleagues who are really in, in the computer vision space, and their view is when it came out, it was just groundbreaking, and nobody quite knew how it worked as well as it did because the technology shouldn't have been there yet yeah uh, so it was yeah i mean it was it was really 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 cool and so many so many interesting things came out so i mean people are still using it for you know medical applications and diagnoses and things like that just like you said gate analysis mm. so that that's really really exciting and um you know we're we're in the same position now um i don't want to reveal too much but there's you know there's a lot of exciting stuff with uh, with wireless technology and millimeter wave sensors that you can mm. do in terms of you know looking at these interesting things yeah, yeah. but yeah so i think but uh, one of the other of course pieces of the puzzle that is quite modern really is of course the general acceptance of cloud technology you know all yeah. the moving data back up to the cloud and then being able to serve that and, and analyze it and use AI. Again, it's it's very modern, especially in the medical world. You know the yeah. Uh, what's the pro the digital first program or cloud first program? Sorry, that the government um, has pushed forward. That's of course I think that's only been started over the last couple of years. And until then, everything was on premise. It was you know servers you can go and look at, which is um, it'd be, it's very difficult to do this kind of application with with yeah. that the, the power of the cloud so it's yeah absolutely i mean um it's I, again there are lots of benefits the key thing of course is you have to be able to you know you need end-to-end -end encryption of data mm. and data privacy is absolutely you know vital um but uh, and you know of course there have been you know uh scandals around that where companies haven't dealt with the data correctly so this yeah. is this is one this is one area where you know like we talked about with interfaces and sensors and so on over the last few years people are really trying to really getting a much better understanding of how what's best practice and how to do it and how to secure data so absolutely i think with cloud technology we're in a really good place now and there, there are so many benefits. I mean, um, you know, UCLH, so uh, the UCLH Trust in Central mm -hmm. London, biggest NHS trust in the UK. And um, when they did their upgrades, they they uh, built a service room, you know, on Euston Road, right in the yeah. center of London, which is prime real estate. 
there's there'd be no difference really if they moved that off to you know mongolia or somewhere like that um but yeah i mean and so of course the staff the it staff it's it, it's really useful for them to have direct access to it but you know we're we're all ex becoming more accepting of remote working now so mm -hmm. i'm sure they'd be happy to move the server to a place where they have a lower cost of living and a lot of their work can be done remotely so yeah cloud is a you know cloud has so many benefits um and from the perspective of sensors just being able to uh process and store just terabytes and terabytes and terabytes of data um, crunching all of that picking out patterns and things uh you know that's huge from a, a diagno medical diagnosis perspective mm -hmm. Um, as long as you can then have the right software platform to present all that data. <laughs> yeah. Which, That's something that you guys are metric. That's something that we do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, and again, so the the other topic, you know, sort of this obviously dear to uh, metricus, I suppose, and well, everyone at the moment is, you know, tracking how air quality also affects uh, everything um yeah you know, um and how that impacts yeah the health and well-being of of people you know i know that we've done we did a study i can't remember where uh in the nhs that showed that the co2 levels in wards were just through the roof you know which again hasn't been that i don't know there's been that many studies on the impact that has on recovery but we know that it has huge huge problems with things like <coughs> people feel um uh, lethargic so they're kind of problem uh, that you mentioned before I've forgotten the name of um, but essentially you know it will encourage people to stay in bed um, is it yeah. decomposing effect yeah decompensation yeah decompensation, De decompensation. <laughs> yeah <laughs> I think that's different um, you know that's obviously going to um, oh, sorry about the siren in London um, yeah. that's only going to further encourage people to stay in wards and stay in bed and you know, not recover as quickly as they can. So yeah, I think the more that we can get the the blend of all these different data sources, so occupancy, vital signs, um, the air quality in a space, all together, so that then we can see essentially what is the what is the best possible environment for people to to recover. Because at the moment we have anecdotal evidence potentially or some medical evidence, but not like looking at the space as a whole and then doing that everywhere. So I think that's the key is yeah. not, you know, doing it in a lab in, in UCL and then proving that it works yeah. in UCL. You've got to do it in the Countess of Chester and, you know, Leeds yeah. everywhere. Otherwise, yeah. you know, not everywhere's London. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I think they are really, I, I mean, first, first of all, I'd say, I mean, the data is, nearly unequivocal that there there are you know pollutants in the air that that have massive impact on our health and it's really detrimental and for me i mean my kids go to school in central london and you know i i just don't even want to look at the you know the air quality levels there um but um i think there are two there are two things that are really really interesting about having you know, high quality air, uh, air quality monitoring sensors. So the first is on a sort of micro level. 
Mm-hmm. Um, if you've got air quality sensors in the home, in the in schools, hospitals, offices, then that gives you data that you need you need on a personal level, on a building management level, to do something about it. So whether it's installing air filters or you know better HVAC systems, or pure purifiers, and just taking action to improve the quality, which is important mm-hmm. for you know my kids or you know <laughs> office workers. Um, the second part is on a macro level. So once you have, you know, once you've collected this data over a large area and over many, many buildings, that's where the cloud side comes in and you can crunch that data and you can, you can see these patterns and, and then who knows where, where that can go. Like if, if everyone had accurate, you know, sensor air quality sensor data that you knew was reliable and, you know, calibrated and so on, then you can, you can really use that to, uh, correlated to um, health trends and see on a of, on a very large scale. So you know, is this pollutant actually leading to you know greater incidence of you know mm. this disease and so on? So that's you know it it's it's important from you know from a a personal level to a, to a national level. Mm. Yeah, the implications of if we manage to get to that state of. Um, really accurate data across a huge number of places is yeah kind of amazing i suppose you know we might may be able to draw some links as to why there are all sorts of things that we know have correlations at the moment but we don't know what causes them um yeah because we simply it sounds like again it sounds like a dissertation right not enough data um, yeah, <laughs> uh, but we are actually getting to a point now with all these different sensors and all the, you know, the cloud technology that we've sort of discussed that maybe not enough data will not be an excuse anymore. <laughs> yeah, that would be, yeah, that'd be nice. Um, yeah, and we can actually start to solve Absolutely. some of these problems. Yeah. Cool. Anyway, so um, I now have my quick, quick fire questions, which oh, I think exciting. Is- yeah, I warned you about before. <laughs> um, okay, I'll warm, warm myself up. <laughs> Take a sip of water. Um, so the first one is, what was your first job? Um, okay, my first my first job I applied for. <laughs> I was I grew up in Kuwait, by the way. So yeah. um, in Kuwait, they you know they were quite strict. You couldn't work till you were eighteen. And uh, when I was around fourteen, my cousin and I were the same age, and we really wanted the job. Um, mm. So I remember we walked into a pizza hut, and we're like, "Can we have a job?" And they just laughed at us. And I said, "You know, bring your supervisor." And the supervisor came, and then he was he was really nice, but he said, "No, sorry, um, you're underage." Um, but so my my first actual job that I, I got was as an intern, I, I worked one month in a bank in Kuwait where my dad had worked previously. So I, I just got to, you know, go in there and um, uh, sort of help them with surveys and data collection and just see what, you know, what working life was like. So, yeah, I mean, it's uh, completely unrelated to anything I've done since, but it was a yeah. fun experience, which I didn't get paid for. Yeah. <laughs> um, you have to pay right? <laughs> yeah well it in was, the UK, it was quite, like, I, I guess it's yeah, yeah a bit different um yeah then I, I went to university so i i mm. moved to the states and um i uh, uh i started working as a researcher so you know from my first um 
first term at uni and uh, got straight into the engineering and maths side of things. Mm. So yeah, that was probably what uh, you know kicked everything off. Nice. Been what my my first job was working in a takeaway. <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> so I was nearly there. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, um, I they didn't I didn't uh, impress them enough at my interview at Pizza Hut. So. <laughs> which is the, the the local chinese <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah um, so yeah when slash where are you most productive i think this is partially oh, the, like you know obviously we're, we're entering this sort of newer world of hybrid working which is yeah yeah exactly so yeah so you know it honestly changes all the time that there, mm. there are moments where I feel most productive working at home. And then there are other times when um, I have to be in the office. Mm. Um, so I think it depends partly on what I'm doing. Like if, I, if I'm, um, you know, writing up a paper or, um, you know, putting together some documentation, then it helps for me to be in the office. Um, if I'm, you know, working on sensors and doing some, you know, fun hardware stuff, it's nice to have access to all my equipment at home. Mm -hmm. um, saying that, though, it's it's been a bit tricky. I'm working on my kitchen table at the moment. So we've been going through the long, you know, uh, Camden uh, uh, planning permission process to get a garden shed built. So <laughs> that's the next step. And I think if you ask me in a few months time, I'm going to say definitely my garden office. <laughs> that's the most yeah. productive place for me. Yeah. Fair. Fair. Um, and what's well, what's your, what's the favorite place that you've worked in? And I think that, in again, in this context, is more like where rather than Nodens. <laughs> okay, because it it one hundred percent is Nodens. Yes. I mean, it's really been an adventure. So I'd say, in terms of location, I think it was probably during my um, you know PhD days mm. because you know it's a typical college town in the states where there's the university and nothing else around it so everyone in the town is at university um the sort of you know working in the lab there people people were were there you know 24 7 if you were there at 3 a.m there'd be a bunch of people who are working on experiments and things like that yeah. but saying that it wasn't an it wasn't an environment that really ground you down i mean it was it was a very friendly environment and you felt that you were all in it together um so yeah it was it was a very uh, positive but also intellectually stimulating experience so yeah. i put that as number one yeah i mean i think hopefully people get that when they go to university i know i know i had similar where sometimes we'd be in the electronics lab until well, the next day. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes yeah. you've got to get it done. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, you can't do things like delay paper hand in times. So yeah, you have no yeah. choice. You must do it. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, this is an, an interesting. So, what, 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 which is the best hospital in your eyes? And I don't, you know, I don't think we need to say like what best means in this in this way can pick. Um, I'm going to choose not to answer if you don't mind. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, I mean, every hospital has their, you know, good and bad points. Um, you know, it's um, 
I won't say, you know, whether it's the best or not, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, my wife recently b- broke her ankle and she went to, you know, uh, UCH um, in, you know, on Houston Road and they have a fracture clinic there. And, you know, they were really amazing. And that shows how, you know, it's such a, a positive side of the, the NHS. You just have mm-hmm. brilliant staff that are there and, you know, you just have such a high level um, of quality of care, yeah. Um, but and also from a technological level, I mean, you know, there there's so much cool stuff going on um, mm. in in hospitals. So you know, so so much uh, amazing technology that's coming in there and that's being used, obviously, to save lives. Um, can hospitals do better? One hundred percent, yes, um, absolutely. But uh, I think it's really cool what they're doing already. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. I mean. I've had to you know, deal with more places like Bir- Birmingham, um, Kansas to Chester, places in London, like, and every single one has been amazing in their own, you know, different way. Um, and but yeah, that's just generally amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. You know, I think uh, you 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 could say best in a thousand different ways and have a thousand different answers. Is I think yeah, yeah, way, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, and. Knowing what you know now, so a little bit, a little bit more experience. What advice would you give to your younger self? Maybe, maybe Khalid when he was applying to to Pizza Hut. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What what, what would you say? Yeah, um, it's it's so difficult to say because you know you always think back about things you could have changed in the past so uh, you know sometimes i i've questioned oh should i have spent so many years at university in the us when for me the uk is more home and i feel oh. more comfortable here and i wonder whether i should have gone back and told myself to just you know come to the uk instead but uh, or come here a bit earlier but um really i mean these are all things that you know help you grow and they make you who you are and you know if if um, i hadn't taken this path then um you know who knows who knows how things would have worked out and i think they've worked out okay so far yeah. um so i i would just go back and say you know enjoy yourself things work out all right so <laughs> just keep going at it yeah it's funny i actually you know last night i was out for dinner with one of the guys guys from work here and he, he asked me it's essentially the same question I didn't know that was going to be on here <laughs> um <laughs> I gave pretty much word for word the same response which is like yeah you know the decisions you make they're not always going to be right um but they're definitely not always going to be right but yeah they are the ones that you you make and it's okay and you'll end up in you know a relatively decent spot so don't don't worry don't yeah. don't have regrets because <laughs> there's no yeah no one benefits from that no one yeah exactly saying that i mean if i had a if i could go back one week in time i would bring myself the euro millions lottery numbers and yeah 180 million yeah yeah that's (laughs) that would do yeah yeah well (laughs) with what you know now you go and do uh what was he called biff in back to the future yeah yeah exactly um cool well it's been brilliant as always to Talk to you, Khalid, and thanks. Thanks for spending. Yeah, your time. definitely. I feel the same uh, way. Yeah. And, uh, and well, thanks for having me here. Anytime. Anytime. 
Um, so the yeah, final bit of housekeeping is to you know, don't don't forget to tune into the next episode of the PropTech Ramble, uh, where Charlotte will be talking to James Cannings uh, from MSQ, uh, and I think that will be about COP26 and its impact on ESG and how companies need to prepare for it. Really, you know, it's coming. So uh, how do you get best prepared? Thanks, everyone.